the quicker you can learn what, to, what you should stop doing as an entrepreneur, the better. So if you can let go of your ego for a minute and just say, well, actually, this that you do, that sucks. Stop doing it. And this that you do, that's great. Keep on developing that part. And then the sooner you can land in that. So the big, that's the biggest lesson I've learned, that it's never too late to actually completely rewire how you think about things. Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Falsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams book more meetings. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO, and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Nicholas Hedin. I'm the CEO and founder of Centero, and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi and welcome, Niklas. Hi. How are you? Well, I'm I'm doing great. This is a sort of a post-Christmas start of the year interview or pod. And I must say we're off to a fresh start of 24. So I, I feel great. Amazing to hear. And then let's jump into it. First thing first, who is Niklas? Please help me get the context of how you look at yourself. Well, so... It, I, I'm a number of things depending on context and who you're, who I'm with. But if if you summarize it, I'm a curious entrepreneur, who who is on a journey with his company and in life in general. Curiosity is is at the heart. Leadership is my passion, because as much as I've worked with technology, and and helping customers, I've I've really understood the essence of leadership. Uh, importance. So that's a passion for me. And then I like to take a different perspective on things. So the curiosity and the this this passion for, for leadership leads me to ask questions in a different way. And that's also of interest to me. So you will find me in any context to sort of provoke what's going on and try to understand and tinker with it. So to change it, that, that's where you will find me. And hopefully, and Hopefully that's inspirational. That that's at least who I try to be. Thank you for sharing. And if we we, we will dive much deeper about your journey soon uh, with your company. Yep. But if we start very simple about your company, Centero, what does your company do? Do the elevator pitch. Yeah. So we are connecting supply chains and delivery networks. So if you don't know anything about that, consider modern e-commerce or modern commerce, uh, however you see it. Off the back end of all of these things uh, that that coordinate websites, warehouse management systems and nodes in the supply chain, there is digital connectivity. Who does that? Well, we do. How do you connect to more than 3,000 transportation providers in 175 countries? So if you want to transact business on a continent and want to establish a delivery network there, who do you call to do those digital integrations? Who do you call if you want to fast spin up a COVID vaccine tracked supply network of deliveries and, and connect all those dots digitally? Well, you call us. 
and you call us if you if you are in medical spare parts and and have critical deliveries that needs to happen to hospitals on on time definite. We're not the logistics company. It's often misunderstood that we do logistics. Rather, we connect the logistics provider with. In this case, could be the hospital, could be the warehouse. So we make sure that that whole thing works. And if you then wish for a text message or you go into a website and try to understand where it is, we're often at times behind the scenes so that, and, and think of any brand name you admire, it's likely that we're behind. So we're working with the world leaders in, in each industry. Five of the biggest 10 logistics companies in the world, many of the leading retailers and e-com companies that you can think of are there. The whole IT industry with our spare parts is on the platform. Our job is to connect networks and make them flow. And when that works, you don't notice us. That's the, the sad, that's the paradox. Yeah. <laughs> you don't notice us. Yeah, like you said, quite sad, but amazing at the same time. Oh, we're happy. <laughs> Nice. So, okay. I, I love to understand the big why, both for a leader, but also for a company. So first, I, I want to understand why did you founded Centero for so uh, many years ago? Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of, and that's still relevant, right? Because it, it, it builds to why am I still here a little bit. But first of all, so there, there are two key reasons why I founded the company. So first of all, there is a need in the market that was unfulfilled. I had a job at the time where I needed software to connect the dots. And in this particular case, I was working for an American company and, and running their distribution, you could say, in a 3PL setting in Scandinavia for Disney. And it was at the time where it was no streaming services, but everything was physical. So we delivered cell through videos and connecting those very, very precise deliveries. The requirement to deliver on time was super high to meet the premier date of Beauty and the Beast, et cetera. That, that was a super high requirement. Integrating that chain turned out there was no software to do that. So I decided to build it. That's number one. And I was I was cheered on by the leading transportation provider in Sweden at the time, Posten, Postnord, to, well, what if, if you do that, you'll become the first in Sweden to do it. And if you do, why could you help us build a product? And the answer then was yes. An entrepreneur would say yes without knowing the risks and consequences. So that's number one. The number two key reason for, so I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs, right? So it, it was sort of at the kitchen table that you could run your own company. That was not a, I grew up with that. that that's how I was sort of brought up. But I, I didn't have that primary desire to become an entrepreneur. That was not the drive. But I realized if this was the moment I would then have to run a company in a different way because I'd seen companies run in such a way where I would, wouldn't want to work there. It was uninspiring, leaders that, that didn't hold up to their promises and whatnot, right? So broken culture and, and, and non-working organizational structures and whatnot. So I decided that the, the key finding, founding factor, you would say, is to I want to build a company that I want to work in. So if I'm now going to start this company, it has to be good. So I, the first founding sentence is, this shall be the best company for customers and employees. It just has to be the best. And it sort of starts with the employee. So I want to work there. What does that mean? And that's still a question. I mean, we, we turned 25 years last year, and that's still a question that's fresh. How, what does that company look like where you want to work? 
tell me about a day. Who's there? What are they doing? What's the energy? What's the spirit? And how do we make sure that we that has to, still happens after 25 years? Very inspiring. Yeah, amazing. And I, I can really hear... Still, I can, I, the listeners don't see the passion in your eyes, the smile. It, it's it's there. You, you can I can truly see the passion. It's it's so inspiring. Twenty five plus years in in your company, still oh. not done. <laughs> exactly. That, that's what I'm feeling. You 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 from your perspective, maybe you have not just begun, but you you, you are you have many decades left with that in that company, right? Potentially. Yeah, we, we could, of course, expand on that a little bit. So how, how what is my thinking around that? But still, I think if you are running a company at the scale at what I'm doing, you have to love it. You have to be passionate about it. If you're not, you, you shouldn't be there. We're absolutely asked to be world performance, the world best at what we do. That cannot be a second thought or something that comes later. It has to be sort of it has to be mounted in your heart. And, and it is in mine. And I have to re-energize around that often so that it's fresh, right? Yeah. Because if, if you start to become sloppy, people will notice. Yeah, definitely. Okay, we move on, Niklas, to an external question. Now it's time for Rickard Koster at Tullify to quickly tune in with a question to you. And this is his question. Hi, Nicholas. You've had a very inspiring journey. Uh, what would you say is the worst thing you've gone through as an entrepreneur? And uh, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? That's a really great question. And I guess that I would, if I frame something that was happening over the course of a couple of years, actually, but it, if you look in the bigger time scale, it's compressed. So if I summarize that, I would say, breaking the barrier to become international and all of what that entails, getting used to and accustomed to an environment which was definitely more hostile, definitely more challenging than I ever could have imagined, Challenge the challenges that I didn't foresee. And those are a number of things. We were challenged commercially. We were challenged in a lot of ways in that sort of time period. I'm talking about the time period 2012, 2014, 15, somewhere. That's a couple of years ago. And that's, it really made me think at the time, what, should should I get used to this? Is this what it is to be a global CEO? Well, I'm not sure I want the job. And if I should have the job, I definitely need to get retrained for it, which I did. So that was a, that was a moment in our history, which was instrumental to where we're now. It was also the hardest part in sort of call it growing up as a company and any company would that goes from being promising and very successful which we were to then breaking and becoming challenging for a world leader position and realizing the different magnitude of stuff you need to deal with that was i would say the hardest as an entrepreneur it is what and i'll come back to that and sort of in 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 the reasoning question we have later is you have to take a decision as an entrepreneur if you if you want to do that. And it has to be very deliberate. And I took it and I said, I need to become a professional entrepreneur and I need to discover what that means. And that also means I need to reshape myself. I need to change some of my behaviors, some of my practices, totally rewire that because whatever I had was not useful 
for the world I was facing and I needed to rebuild teams. I needed to do a lot of things, but that also included myself. So that was a, the learning, I guess, is, and it comes back to things I, I should have known before, is the quicker you can learn what, to, what you should stop doing as an entrepreneur, the better. So if you can let go of your ego for a minute and just say, well, actually, these are some of the things I'm really good at. That was a very refreshing it was a series of coaching sessions and a number of things that had me go through this change at the time. But at the end of the day, it was like, well, this that you do, that sucks. Stop doing it. And this that you do, that's great. Keep on developing that part. And then the sooner you can land in that. So the big, that's the biggest lesson I've learned, that it's never too late to actually completely rewire how you think about things. That is possible, and it, it, it's very refreshing, but it's the art of letting go. You, you have to sort of let go whatever you thought and accept that, well, let's shape new reality. Let's see what that reality is. It's a very methodical way in becoming a professional entrepreneur. I will encourage people to, to do that, but it's, it's not, you have to take a decision. It's hard work. Yes, listening to you is like pure wisdom. So I just don't, don't want you to stop almost, but it's good because, uh, first of all, I want to thank you, Richard, for the question. Thank you. And Niklas, you tapped into it because I know what's coming now. You know also what's coming. It's a topic of your choice. So instead of letting do follow-on questions on the things you just talked about, I will let you have the floor is yours because it's a quite similar topic. And then I will dig from there. So... The only rule here in a topic of your choice is that you need to talk about something that you are very nerdy about and feel passion for. So the floor is yours. So I, I'm nerdy and passionate about a number of things. So first of all, let's just paint a little bit of background to me first uh, before I go into it so people understand uh, where I come from. So apart from growing up in an entrepreneurial family, I'm a, I'm a technical, I'm an engineering type person. I'm technically interested and technically driven. I'm curious. So that's one leg. Uh, the other sort of leg that the stool is sitting on is, is the interest for how does commerce work and supply chains and all of that. And, and the last bit, which is, the I would say, probably the, the crown jewel these days is, is, is interest in leadership and how, how does organizations work and why do people do like they do? What makes them do great things? What makes them do not so great things? And what's the difference between the two? And, and so... I'll take you through some of the steps on a journey because I know that the, the listeners here are all CEOs at various stages of entrepreneurial companies, most of them SaaS, but probably a few others if you're successful in, in, in getting listeners. And they are probably at various different stages. So I'll try to take you through what started as a me, myself, and I journey because I started on my own with pairs of hands and few relationships and, and, and the people I was working with, et cetera. But really, from a company perspective, just myself. And then to where we are today, where we're now more than 650 people in eight countries and customers in 175, definitely a global player. And there are a few things along that way that may or may not be helpful for the listener. So I, I'll sort of just paint a few phases of this journey 
because what I'm passionate about and the question that arose, so when we were about 15, 20 people in the company, uh, one of our co colleagues at the time said, I will leave after we're 20. After we become 20, I'll leave. And I asked, so why? What happens when we turn 20 that will make you quit? Well, I think we'll become large and boring. Okay, we'll become uninspiring and uninteresting and I want to move on. I like this sort of startup y feel culture that we have. And most people, yeah, you, you only need one table at a restaurant, basically, and everybody's there. It's a wonderful time if you're a company, if, if you're that sort of 5, 10, 15 people size. It's wonderful. It's, it's like beautiful. You also do not have to deal with structure at that time because you can pretty much just do, you just huddle up and you solve it. And he said, well, I'll leave. And I'm like, okay, but what is it that we are doing that you want to keep? And what is it that we don't want that we want to do away with? And that started a sort of a conversation along the whole group that why don't we own this so that we come further? Because, yeah, I mean, you, you do pass a threshold. So the, the, the 21 is interesting, 20, 25, 31 is interesting. I have heard several entrepreneurs reflect on this. So it's not just me. I know that this, there are some thresholds here. This that is where organizational me. structure comes into play. People, you notice when people start saying, well, I'm not part of all meetings anymore. I'm not part of all the, I used to know everything and now I don't know anything. By the way, I need a title. I need a role. We need to know the boundaries and differences between X, Y, and Z. And people start then pulling in these lines and the sort of, how do you say, the boundaries between work division and who owns what and who gets paid for what. And you can see this in the documentary or, or a feature documentary about Spotify, for example, the series on people starting fighting, giving titles early on, which I think could be a mistake. But anyway, so the important bit there is we have the conversation about what's important to us. And that has continued through all the phases. So when we became 3035, it was very apparent that we had to make a choice. Do we become bigger? Because if we become bigger, there are things we have to do. Or should we stay this size? That was a deliberate decision. Because when you start moving from the 30s up to the 100s, you are on a, what I call a, 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 a desert journey because you are too large to be small and you're too small to be large. You don't have the benefits and, and, and scale uh, benefits of being a large company. You don't because you're too small. You don't have the financial resource, etc. Even if you're funded, doesn't matter. Because even if you do get a ton of money, you're still only 30 people that can sort of do anything with it. So you don't have the scale. And you're also not small enough so you can say you're small. So you have all you have many of the problems of becoming larger. People wanting structure and titles and not everything. So that was the desert part and moving from and we started investing in organizational structure early so that once we became 75, 80, 90, we wouldn't have the problems that you would otherwise get. And I've heard another very successful SaaS entrepreneur that employed people up to 80, 100, haven't thought about it and had to scale back down to 20, almost 30. Very painful, refreshing, but still it happened, right? So we've tried to stay ahead of the growth curve all of the time so that 
we don't get surprised by growth, but rather we plan for it. This means a couple of things. So first of all, you have to, the financial outcome becomes a little bit secondary because you can't optimize for profit when you're doing this. You have to invest. If your thinking is that we'll become bigger and and I'm not being unprofitable. We've always been profitable. We never had external funding. So, so we are proof that you can actually build a company organically. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. It's popular these days to get funding and try to speed things up, but money cannot buy time. Money cannot make things go faster organically. It, people are wired a certain way, and you can only scale as fast as you can without breaking things, right? But so that phase was interesting in the sense that it brought us up to the position I mentioned earlier. Like, okay, now we're now, we either have to, go out from the market because we're competed with and challenged or we have to win this. So that was a very particular decision that formed the journey from, I would say, 75, 100 people size, just to give an idea of what it is, in one country, in one place, one office, to now people in almost all the time zones and, and with variation of culture and backgrounds and everything. So, and that has a number of stages too, where we had, but what's sort of common to all of these stages is the conversation. Okay, so going into this phase, when we're now scaling from 300 to 600, which we did, what is it that we want to keep so we don't become uninteresting, boring, bureaucratic, gray, whatever? Why does a number on paper suggest that the company becomes boring? So that's the kind of conversation we've had over the sort of over the whole of the organization to maintain the same question that was asked when we were 15, 20. It's still the same. We have completely different resources now. We can think about this in a different way. Still, same question. Because I think what you, you can die like philosophically or, or from a soul perspective as a brand, as a company when you're 15 or you can die when you're or become interesting when you're 30 doesn't doesn't really matter if you're sloppy with it and if you don't consider to be a precious resource i mean if you think about if it's all about the money or the customers or whatever you're gonna be uninspiring to people at one point so we always put people's interest first and accept financial outcome later that's sort of a key priority and throughout the whole journey that, that, that we've been through and talking about the whole journey uh, and it makes uh, it sounds so uh, obvious and clear now when you're talking about it with uh, everything you're being gone through but what was the biggest mistake looking back you would say in the journey of going from one to 650 well i don't frame well so are there mistakes along the route and was this ever easy no of course there were many sort of screw-ups and hiccups and mistakes, but I view them as a welcome part of who we are. So I, I, don't, I don't frame things that we do as failures. When we take on an endeavor that would require an investment, like opening up in a new country, let's just say we're going to the US. When we take that decision to open up that market and try, we completely accept that it's not going to work. That's the outset. If we don't plan for it failing, we haven't got done our job. And the, the mantra not, has been... Not going work at all or that you will do 
several hiccups down the road. Now let's consider that we go there and it doesn't work and we have to retract. Do we have the financial bandwidth to do that? To, because we want to go away from that and just brush off the dust from the shoulders and say, okay, we tried. So that's why mentally we don't really, I don't really see things as mistakes or failures in that way. There are learnings, of course. The only mistake you can make in my book is that if you if you do something like that, you don't learn from it and just stuff it away, then it's worthless. And then we can, ap- that's absolutely a mistake. We've had many learnings along the way, but I wouldn't characterize them as mistakes. Hey, I mean, we're, we're here talking, right? So <laughs> there, there's something that went right with this. And there are many moments where you could say, yeah, well, that was unnecessary. Yeah, sure. But I don't call them mistakes. I, I actually don't do. And it's the same with the, what keeps you awake at night. I, nothing. I don't allow it to. You sleep like a baby. Well, there are there are nights when I don't sleep well, but I don't allow that. I allow that for one night. That's it. Then that's a signal to me that I need to deal with it. And that's a process and it's a training in itself to to discipline yourself to not that you need to own your show, right? You need to own your mental platform. And, and, and if we deepen on that a little bit, of course, there are moments in an entrepreneur's life where you think about things and you're worried. That's natural. That's fully accepted. I'm not suggesting I'm a robot. What I am suggesting, though, is that if you have a conscious particular process on understanding why you're worried and how you break that down, and translate that into not allowing it to happen again or, or changing conditions so that you don't have to worry. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you for a great topic and a massive amount of valuable insights. But we need to move on, Niklas, because you are a super busy person and I have a couple of questions left before I let you go. So uh, talking about go-to-market strategy. I don't want you to be broad now. I want to understand the one thing, according to you, that's most important connected to go-to-market strategy. What's that? Well, without exposing information that could be useful for people listening to this that could challenge us, right? Because I need to be, I need to be particular about that because I want my company to still continue. I would say that there are a number of things that are overvalued that we don't pay much attention to, like volume in social media posts, or there are a number of things that are unrelated to actually increasing sales and go to market. So I'm a person that believes in getting customers on board. That doesn't have to mean, and that's go to market, right? So market is people buying from you. It's not necessarily people reading 10,000 tweets or so. That's not the same thing. And there's no real correlation between the volume of sort of announcements or traffic and how people buy from you. We learned very early on that people were buying from us for a particular reason. We got the job right. And so our core go-to-market strategy is still get the job right because if you please people and, and make their life easier, they will actually tell people about that. And that's how the word of mouth marketing is so strong, it's unbeatable. So that's our key. And that means we vary volume channel a lot. We're not particular about owning channels or being having high volume. It's important for us to be relevant for professional people. 
And if we're relevant for professional people who do important jobs, they will tell about it and you get a rumor and suddenly now you have more customers. So that's for us, for me, regardless if you're a startup teenager selling hoodies or if, you, if you're if you B2B SaaS, what's your relevancy? And if you frame the question this way, why should your customer care about you? And if you can't answer that question with crispness and two sentences, you probably have to work on your on your, if not value proposition, but at least, because how do they touch, how do you touch their hearts? Many, I see many efforts that create functional products and stuff that may or may not be useful, but how do they actually move the needle of a person in another company to a point where they are freely willing to give up their money and hand it over to you and smile? And if you can't get that, why should I care question, to such a degree where people will fight for you, then again, for me, that's at the core of a go-to-market strategy. Because unless you can do that part, it doesn't matter how much you scream. Because if you scream and get customers on, and if you're not relevant, you'll get tossed out tomorrow. It's not sustainable. You, you may get early success or quick success, but it's not sustainable. So I'm a lot about how do you sustain this? And that comes from a, a really good value felt by the customer that they are saying, yes, I'm willing to give up my money. In fact, you can have more. And I don't mind because I, I like it and 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 it actually gives me more value. Actually, I'm getting more value out of this equation than than Nicholas is or his company. That's how you get satisfied customers. That's the most important thing, I think, in a, in a go-to-market strategy. And it's, it is for me, it is for us, and it still is. It was the same in when we were five as when we were six, 600, 700 people. Good. And talking about sales then and outreach. And now I don't want to understand your outbound and outreach process. I want to understand your preferred way, Niklas, of being contacted by a salesperson. Meaning, what's the best way to do outreach to you? How would mm. you like to get approached? Well... So let me tell you about what doesn't work, uh, because that's the most frequent. And let's then flip that to say, okay, actually, well, th this or this way may be useful. So you can imagine I get approached a gazillion of times. And that, I mean, it, it, it's every day. It's calls. It's outreach like crazy. Uh, I've tried to delete my name and contact details, a number of these popular sites, plugins to LinkedIn, et cetera, to not get contacted. And I have a, I have a cell response auto reply that I just send out if I get an outreach like that. Because most of that time, and I had a conversation with a company from, in this case, India, who they had what looked like a good service. It was not a SaaS service, but it was a service they could offer. Nothing wrong with it. It's just that they they hadn't, and this is characteristic by bad outreach, is that they didn't have they hadn't done their homework. And they said, well, we can improve your employee engagement, and we have world-class employee engagement. In fact, we are helping people to get engagement in our customers and others, and we can yeah, teach how to, how to do that. We're a leading example. Claiming that you could substantially, materially impact that is then you haven't understood who we are. So, and that's characteristic for 95% of the outreach is they, they haven't even understood even your name, even who you are, nothing, no research. It's just mechanical. 
and 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 don't bother about four-step email inbound marketing templating. Just forget about it. What helps, and this is particular a little bit to my role as well, because I do get exposed. Remember, it's a big ship, it's it's and it's global exposure. That means I have to shut the doors. I can't be responding to to salespeople. I can't. It's a hundred percent no. What opens the door is the interesting question to your core. Those are people that dare to say, actually, I'm not sure I have anything to offer you. However, these are some of my perspectives. And if they, if you also, that means they probably read up about you. They probably understand. They at least gave your website five minutes. <laughs> they can at least say your name and have an idea of what may be some of the perspectives that you're looking at, which means it leads to a warm call. So I've had a few real good warm calls where you know the person understands who you are and you understand that let's just understand if I'm wasting your time or not. The worst ones are where you get a caller to start reading from a script completely uninformed and not even asking, sorry, do you have a few minutes? So 99% will not ask if you have time. And I tell them, you're calling on my cell phone. You can imagine if I'm in a meeting or something, I always pick up the phone because it could be a customer. So that's 100% pickup rate from me. I will never sort of discard a call unless I know the number and I'll send a text. But if I pick it up and there's a salesperson on the other side, they start reading. I just inform that this conversation is over. Bye. Because they didn't even bother to ask if, do you have the time? Is this a good time? Shall I call you later? Uh, I may have some interesting perspectives for you. So warm call where you researched you understand who you're calling and you understand the context you're calling into. You are respectful of understanding you may be the 10th person reaching out today and understanding the challenge from my side and empathizing with that a little bit. Then we can have a conversation. But it's it's a 99.9 no rate in outreach when it comes to me. Sorry, but it's because they're either mechanical or they're uninformed or both. We need to enter the roundup now because we only have three questions left and then you need to go. Uh, so first thing in the roundup, a book tip. What's your favorite yeah. book? So one of my favorites right now, I, I try to read a lot, but one of the favorites right now still is Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. It's the book about Pixar. It's a book about how Pixar became the greatest animation uh, studio and how they were sold to Disney, how he collaborated with Steve Jobs. They are, in the end of the book, similar size to us right now, which means we're following an entrepreneur from a dream and a young engineer who, who builds the greatest animation studio on the planet and all the learnings along the way. And it's there are many similarities. I won't compare otherwise because they're a billion-dollar company. I respect that. But however, in the learnings, there are a lot of similarities like doing away with titles. Why are titles important? And there's a moment in that book where they realize, oh, this, this is really bad. We need, to, we need to do away with that. And so that book, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, highly recommended. It's a, it's a, it's an, and it's a well-told story as well. Thank you. Second last question, a life motto. Can you share one of your favorite life mottos? Yeah, so when I was 15 years old, which is a number of years ago, but it's still relevant. So... A good sailor doesn't ask for wind. He learns how to sail. 
And that, just think about the pandemic. You had many uh, companies, you could, you could translate and say, well, a good surfer doesn't ask for waves. It learns how to surf the waves, right? So what could be a challenge to some people could actually be the opportunity if you're an entrepreneur. Whatever there's energy, there is movement, there's an opportunity. And it could be seen as a challenge, but that could also flip to become an opportunity. And the very last question then. And now you're talking to yourself, the younger self. It, what If you would give yourself the top one to three things to think of that you now know that you didn't know, what would you tell yourself? I would, the first one, I, and, and, and again, people told me, so I sort of heard this, but I would tell myself too, is stay on it. You're on the right track, but you'll learn later. That, that's the number one. You won't understand right now, but just stay on it and, you, and you'll be fine. So that's the first advice uh, because you do things initially and you don't understand why it's working and you find out later. So, so stay on it. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. That's number one. Number two is stop doing things you're not good at sooner. So start thinking about what you're not good at sooner rather than later. Don't get away with your ego. Just let your become confident in who you are and relaxed in, in what that persona is so that you can start saying, actually, I suck at this. Let's, let's be gone with it and don't have the prestige. Don't have invest yourself in having to know or own things. That's just pure madness. So I would tell myself to stop doing things you're not good at sooner and start that process of trying to find that out. The, the third thing I would tell myself is make sure you have fun and enjoy the ride. There's no such thing. And I've seen many, this is a level of depth in it because I've seen many entrepreneurs. I've had roles where I've seen many, many, many entrepreneurs through various life stages of their companies and life stages. Don't postpone your life. Like it's not going to get lived later. Live it now. I mean, make sure that whatever journey you're on with your entrepreneurship or company endeavor, make sure it's also fun so you enjoy the ride. And with enjoy, I don't mean drinking champagne every day. That's not the suggestion. But if you can ground yourself in, in the sort of, in enjoying the day, finding value in what you do each and every day, and not wishing for it to be something 10 years later, because it will not, it will never be what you thought it's going to be. Try to guess what's going to happen the next three weeks, even today. It's that's difficult and not ask for five to 10 years. It's hard. So I would make sure that I don't wait for that. And I actually make sure you have fun along the way. And with these amazing words, we put period and I'm quickly shifting the focus to you as been listening. Two quick ones. Number one, if you got value here from Niklas, don't be selfish. Tell a friend, tell a colleague to listen to Niklas in B2B SaaS And thing number two, press the subscription button. We have great guests coming here every week. And Niklas... Huge thank you for putting aside a bit more than 30 minutes together with me to help the SaaS community to keep on learning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.